So the text for today is Proverbs 27.7. One who is full loathes honey, but to one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. Thanks. <laughs> Appreciate that. All right, I'm going to explain that. Well, don't worry about it. There was a mix-up, clearly, but uh, I'm, I'm very grateful. Um, it, I know that passage... Proverbs 27, 7 is, a, is kind of a funny passage if you just see it. And I've never preached on just a proverb, and so this is going to be interesting, but I think it's going to be really valuable. So um, we're about 30 hours away from the new year from this point, about 30 hours. And um, I'm a big New Year's fan. I'm a big resolution fan. I'm a big, I, I make resolutions in my sleep. I do them by the week, I do them by the month, and so more so for the year. So I'm pretty excited about that. And there, but there is nothing magical about a new year, right? It's just a, a time, but it's helpful to kind of look back and to also dream about what lies ahead. And I'm really excited for what God has for us. We, we're only six months old as a church. We're such a baby. And I just can't wait for what the next six months will look like for us. And um, a thing that a lot of people get into for the new year it is, is dieting. If you know how my parents look and you know me, I, I've never had to diet in my life by God's grace. Um, the only kind of dieting I've had to do is trying to consume more so that I don't look like I'm fading away. I've always had that problem and some of you as I look and Ross has that problem too. And, um, and, but, but a lot of people are working on dieting right now and thinking about how to improve their, their bodies or their health. But I want to talk to you about spiritual dieting. And it sounds a little cheesy how I make that transition, but the spiritual dieting is infinitely more important. And while physical dieting may affect you for a season, how many of you know that if you fall off the bandwagon just a little bit, you're, you're right back where you, you were, or worse, and it stinks. But spiritual dieting has effects long-term that matter more. So I hope that matters. And for those of you who are visitors, or maybe you're not a follower of Jesus or a skeptic, this actually has a lot to do with you. This, this sermon is addressed to believers, followers of Jesus, but I think this is going to really relate with you in certain ways. So may God help me do that. You know, to start off, I want to ex- share with you a season of my life. It was the sweetest season I had with God. And although I've grown, I'm more mature in different ways, this season, about 12 years ago, was the sweetest season I ever had with Jesus. And um, I was part of this program called Master's Commission. It was a discipleship program, and for nine months, it was set apart where I'm just focusing on growing with God and getting closer to Him. And um, it, it, was, it was extremely hard. Uh, I went through trials all the time. They basically crammed like 10 of us in like a three-bedroom apartment. And we're like, all right, love each other. And we were all across the board when it comes to maturity and motivations of why we're here. So we fought all the time. There's all these things that went on. And I even had a huge crisis during that season. But what I remember most during those nine months is how much I loved God, how much I wanted to be with him. And I've never been able to reach this level of hunger before. And I don't know if it's attainable, too, because I didn't have kids then. <laughs> and um, until like last night, you know, Eden was throwing up every 30 minutes to every 15 to 30 minutes. And so it's hard to have capacity to want God. And so for those of you guys who don't know, all my, 
my kids and my wife are sick right now, and I think God sustained me just so I can give you this word. So probably right after I say amen, I'm going to go throw up or something. <laughs> but right now, I'm feeling pretty good, so pray for me. But that season was so intense, and I remember being so close to God that I would almost feel physical presence, like, like he was near me, that I wanted to be with him so bad that at times at night, I could not fall asleep because I could not wait to wake up to be with him. My times with Jesus were literally the best part of my day. And I remember, and this was because I was so immature, one day I woke up and I slept in. And I got so mad that I punched the wall and made a dent in it because I was so godly. I don't know. But, I was, but that's how bad. I was like, oh no, I missed time with you. And I, as if God wanted me to do that. Um, but I, it was just a, such a sweet season of just hunger for God and longing for him. And I wonder if any of you have been in a place where you wanted God more than you do right now. A season where it was so much sweeter and you longed for him, you loved him, you cared about him more than anything else. And maybe like me, you look back with fondness and you, you wonder like, oh, where, where have I gone? For the last few months, I feel like God has been wooing me and saying, Sam, I want to bring you back and I want to take you further. And as I preach once in Ephesians 3.20, exceedingly abundantly more than we can ask or think. Whatever you imagine he wants for you, God wants even more. Whatever you dream of, that kind of nearness and that kind of hunger. But the reality that we all have to deal with is that God has not moved. God has not changed. One of my favorite verses is James 4, 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is one of the greatest invitations in the Bible. It is almost blasphemy. God is beckoning us and saying, if you want to draw near to me, I will then respond and draw near to you. What kind of condescendence is this? The God of the universe would literally say, I will move if you move. If you take steps towards me, I'll take steps towards you. And I remember when I first gra grasped this 15 years ago, it, 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 it was like a firecracker because I would see people growing up in church. I wasn't following Jesus, but I at least was around Christians. And I would see some people who loved God so much. And you know what I would think in my mind? I would say, oh, that's just you. That's just how you are. That's probably like a personality thing. Oh, that person's Latin. They're just fiery and passionate, right? And I just try to chalk it up to some personality trait or some, something else that was beyond me. I didn't want to ever conceive the idea that I could actually influence my desires and my hungers. So one of the biggest things I want us to walk away with is a sense of responsibility and onus that you actually can influence how much you want God and you can actually influence how much near, how near you are to God. It's kind of like the husband that sees another husband going just absolutely bonkers for his wife and just so love and love and you're like, oh yeah, that's, that's, that's Ted. He's just so in love with his wife. And that husband, forgetting that they actually can take steps and start to do things in their marriage to stir up greater affection for his own wife. But, but, but this guy doesn't want to think that, right? Because, no, 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 that would mean that I have to do something. No, 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 it's just that guy. It's just because his wife is so great or, or something like that. And so that's what I want to grasp together as a foundation. When we think about 
dieting and all the different things that we do for our physical bodies, there's actually a ton of similarities spiritually. And so we're going to go into three different points. And so you're going to see them on the screen. Number one is, how much should we desire God? If you're a note person, how much should we desire God? We're going to unpack that. Number two, what spoils our hunger for God? And number three, how to grow in hunger for God. Or in other words, how to change our spiritual taste buds, if you want to hyphenate that or something. So number one, how much should we desire God? Let's see a few examples in Scripture of how Scripture talks about how much we can want and desire God. But let me set that up before we go to our first passage in Psalm 24. You can flip there if you'd like. But if God were to come to you in a dream, just imagine this. If you are going to come to you in a dream, in all his glory, and say, listen, blank person, you, Ask me of anything you want, and I'll give it to you, 100%. No questions asked. Except you can't wish for more wishes, and you can't, whatever it is. I'm just kidding. Anybody pick up that reference? Anybody? One person? Two people? Nope. Okay, Aladdin. Thank you. All right, 90s people. Um, He said, anything you want, you can ask me. What would you ask God? If you knew he would answer it, what's the one thing you'd ask him? Now look at Psalm 24-7. David penned this after he was already king. He's a man who has everything. And this is the, what, what he asks. The one thing that he asks. One thing have I asked of the Lord. This is Psalm 27.4. That will I seek after. What, what is this that he's asking for? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. To put it in more simple, understandable language. You go to David and you say, David, God will give you one thing, anything you want. More wives, whatever, he has a lot of wives. More money, more acclaim, more victories. What would you want? More respect? No, God. Give me one thing. I want God. I want to be with him and I want to see him. I just want to spend my days looking at him. And I wonder how many of us would say that also. David prays later on in Psalm 63, 1 through 3, and he prays this. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul, it thirsts for you. My flesh, it faints for you. Or other translation says, pants for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And, and then he just unpacks, man, I've seen you before. I've touched, I tasted and I've seen. I've, I've been ruined I've tasted and I've encountered the real God, not the the God that people talk about, but I've encountered Him, and I want Him more than anything, and my flesh is just longing. I feel it in my bones. And I believe these two prayers are in the Bible, not as just prayers to describe or explain something that happened for someone, but actually as invitations for us. Let me say that again. I think these two prayers are not here just merely to describe an experience someone else had, but they're, they're calling you to have it also. They're invitations. You can have this kind of intimacy with this God of the universe who loves you unto death. And that's something that I really want to be clear because I'm going to be calling out over and over how much do we want God, our desire. And my one, one, one of my biggest fears as I've been praying and prepping for this sermon is, Lord, I don't want people to feel beat up. Oh, I just don't desire God enough. I want you to walk away saying, God wants you more than you realize. 
more than you know, and you can have more of them more than you know. This is an invitation sermon, not a spank you sermon and saying you're not good enough. Why don't you love God? Why do you love so many things more? Although that is true, and although I will highlight those realities because we do have other things that are competing for our affection for God. But what I want you to know is that He wants you to have this. He wants you to have this. Not just the other person whose so per, personality is so charismatic and passionate. He wants you to have that with Him. Now the title of this section, How Much Should We Desire God? I use the word should on purpose. Now should is a tricky word because it can imply duty. You should do that, Sam. It implies you have to, not want to. And I want to say in one sense, this should is absolutely a delight. Not a duty. We'll get to duty in a second. God is the most desirable being in the universe. And so when we don't desire him as we ought to, something's wrong with him. Us, not him. And we get to experience him. We get to have him. All of us have experienced a friend who's just absolutely in love with jerks and idiots and fools. Anyone? Maybe you know them right now. You're like, why do you like that person? He's terrible. He's no good news for you. And yet, maybe there's someone else in the same friend group who's just the most amazing person. And that person is available, and that person even likes your friend. And you're like trying to shake your friend. Don't you see that person? Swipe left. Like, whatever. Is it swipe left? Is that right? I've never done that. <laughs> but swipe left. Get away from that person. That person's no good. Don't you see? Are you so blind? All right, we've all seen that in different iterations where someone is absolutely blind to the beautiful person that's in front of them. And, 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 and kinda, it's kind of like that with God, but woefully different. All right, no one is more beautiful or worthy or desirable than him. And no one is as available. He's given himself. He's like, I'm as available as you want. And he loves us with the immensity of the sun. And yet, many of us are absolutely blind. The world is blind to him. We, we have our, our blinders on looking at the idiots in our life, the fools in our life, the jerks in our life that constantly ruin us and we go back for more. And yet he's right there and we're blind. When I use the word should, I also mean should as in obligation, which is weird to say. And it may strike you as funny, but let me explain. Again, back to what I just said. God is the most glorious, most desirable being in the whole universe. And there is a sense of outrage in the courts of heaven as the angels look upon us and we, they see us obsessing over lesser loves, lesser beings. And the courts of heaven, if they had hair or maybe their wings, whatever, they're plucking them out and saying, oh my gosh, you, Sam, you're so stupid. How could you, what do you see in that thing? That career, that person, that relationship, that thing. When you have God who's available. And so in one sense, we should. We were made for him and made to love that which is most lovely. And so when we give ourselves to lesser loves, we, even, we betray our very design. We self-destruct. We destroy ourselves. And because God is most 
glorious and most beautiful and most lovely, most desirable. It is the most loving thing for this God to say, look at me! Look at me! God is the only being in the universe in which pointing to himself, getting you to look at him, is actually not a selfish thing, but a loving thing. Because he has made you for himself, and so if you set your gaze on other lesser loves and not him, that is a disservice to you. So he is actually unloving if he says, no, 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 just love yourselves. Just love yourselves. Hey, love that thing. That, that, that jerk, that's fine. Love him. No, no, no. Uh, to each their own. It is a loving thing for God to say, look at me. Look at me. I will give you life. I will give you hope. I will give you peace. I will give you joy. God is the only being who that could be said. I should never say that to you. Look at me. Look at me. Because I am an empty well. I run dry. My love is fickle. My love is limited. But God is infinite. And so pointing at himself is the most loving thing. When I first heard this, 12 years ago maybe, something like this, there's a book called, by Max Lucado, uh, called It's Not About Me. And I remember reading that and getting this idea that God is about his own glory. I was so offended. God is, you're such a megalomaniac. You're so petty. You just want people to worship you. What kind of God are you to, to, to want that? And then a few more years as I studied the Bible and I let this wrap, warp, not warp, but shape my worldview and start to see the way the world has infiltrated into my thinking, I started to believe it. And then a few more years, I started to love it. And now I can say I'm at the point where the idea that God makes much of himself and wants us to look at him, at him is so great. I wouldn't have it any other way. Because really, what is the other alternative? To look at you? To look at me? To look at rocks? Or the Grand Canyon? All of those are beams that point to the sun. They all ride up to him. And so the most loving thing God could do is say, look at me. Set your gaze on me. And I'll give you life. And so we should desire God more than anyone or anything. And we must desire God more than anyone or anything. Our lives are at stake for this. It's not merely a matter of heaven and hell. It's a matter of life and life abundantly. Now, we understand how much we should desire him. Number two, what spoils our hunger? What spoils our hunger for God? There are four primary culprits that I want to highlight. There are more than these, but these are at least four very important ones. We're going to sprint through one through three, and then we're going to camp out on number four. Okay, so four primary spoilers of our hunger for God. Number one, sins of commission. Sins of commission. We're going to talk about number two, sins of omission. Sins of commission, if you're not familiar with that language, I wasn't until a few years ago. I don't know why, but sins of commission is blatant sin that you commit. And it's, it's things that you do that God is deeply grieved by and you do not repent, you do not confess, it's secret, and you hide it. And one of the worst sins possible that you could commit is unconfessed sin. It's sin that is not brought to the light. And I'll tell you, nothing else will destroy your desire for God, your hunger for God more than unconfessed, blatant sin. That's number one. But hopefully that's a given. Just like any relationship, if you 
blatantly sin and hurt your spouse or a loved one, that's going to hamper your desire for that person, their desire for you, their relationship with you. Same thing with our relationship with God because it is a relationship. It's a love relationship. Number two, sins of omission. Now this is something that we don't talk a lot in churches and maybe worth a lot more time, but sins of omissions are basically things that aren't blatantly out there, but they're things that we don't do, that we ought to do. We are omitting ourselves. We're not talking to that person or we're not forgiving that person. We're not loving that person we're called to love or whatever it is. That one is a lot harder to handle because it's not merely don't do, it's do also. And that can get in our way for our hunger. It can spoil our hunger. Number three, idols. Idols can be anything in our life. And sometimes they're good things that are not inherently bad. But they have come and they've taken preeminence in our hearts, affections, and our desires. And they become our obsession. It could be a career, school, a relationship, a game. But it is something that has slowly grown to be more important to you than God. And that's an idol. And usually you can tell what your idols are by how much time, attention, and money you spend on that idol. To be with it or to get to it or whatever. Or, if you take it away, how you respond. That's, those are usually good litmus tests. But we're on a sprint right now. Let's now camp out at number four. Junk food. Number four, junk food, if you're taking notes. Fourth spoiler of our hunger for God is junk food. Before we can unpack this, we've got to understand an important principle in Proverbs that um, was read earlier. Look at Proverbs 27.7 again. I know this is a funny proverb, but it's extremely profound. The one who is full loathes the honeycomb or honey, but to the one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. The message paraphrase says it like this. <clears throat> when you've stuffed yourself, you refuse dessert. When you're starved, you could eat a horse. You guys tracking with what this proverb generally means? I think we've all experienced it. There's a contrast here between the full person and the hungry person. So let's unpack this verse. So let's look at the full person. There's one who is full, stuffed, and as a result, they're loathing honey. In this time the proverb was penned, honey is one of the sweetest things you could experience that you could taste. It was a luxury food, and it was constantly used when, when, when you would think of uh, promise. Let's go to the land flowing with milk and honey. Okay, so it was rich. It wasn't, now we have a lot of other stuff. We have, we, we have made sweet stuff from corn somehow. We can make it into a syrup. We have all, but back in this time, that's all they had for the most part. And it was extremely sweet and a delicacy. And so what the proverb uh, is trying to do is, is highlight a delicacy. That someone who is stuffed can't even handle a delicacy because they're so stuffed. I think all of us understand this reality. Um, all of us probably experience this on Thanksgiving. Right? You're, you're gorging yourself with food. You're maybe wearing your Thanksgiving pants for extra stretchiness. And you're eating and you're eating and you're eating. And by the end of the day, the thought of food may make you want to barf. You know what I'm saying? If you don't feel that, you didn't do it right, right? That's, that's Thanksgiving. Part of Thanksgiving is gluttony, is just gorging yourself on food. Um, 
And, and I'm being a little facetious right now. Um, but we all know that reality, right? You could even have a bad Thanksgiving meal, but if someone were then to offer you a delicacy that you would just crave for any other day, you'd just be like, oh, I can't even look at that, right? And if you watch a commercial and you're watching Thanksgiving football or whatever it is, you're just like, ah, you know, it's like, show, hide, hide it from me, you know? Because we have a sense, we all know that sense of being overly stuffed that you just can't even handle a delicacy. And note this, the loathing that results does not matter what you're full on. You could be full on the, the finest food or a bunch of vending machine food. The result is the same. If you are overly stuffed, you cannot handle something better. Now, let's look at the hungry person. But to the one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. All of us know what this is like. If you are starving, if you are hungry, even something bland or plain, even nasty can taste delicious. You know what I'm saying? And if you're not a good cook, here's a word of advice. Postpone as long as possible feeding the people. As long as appropriate and then feed them. And your meal will taste better even if you're a lousy cook. Guaranteed. Right? As one, pro uh, one person said, hunger is the greatest sauce. <laughs> hunger is the greatest sauce. Amen? It's true. Luke 15, 16, we all probably maybe have heard this parable of the, the prodigal son. There came to a point that even though he dined on the richest stuff, he came to a point where he was so hungry that even the slop that the pigs were eating, he would long for. You want to know the greatest meal that I've ever had? Probably all of us, if we think hard enough, can think of like this was this one meal was the greatest meal I've ever had. My greatest meal I've ever had in my life was spinach soup. <laughs> and, and some of you guys are like, yeah, all right? Vegans, maybe. But, but for most normal people, spinach soup, you're like, dude, why spinach soup? How could that be the best? Well, because I haven't eaten in 21 days, right? I, I've never done a long fast. I did one. <laughs> Again, I didn't have kids then. And I did this long fast, and I remember at the end of it, I drove home to my parents' house, and uh, my mom made me a spinach soup. And I don't like spinach, and it was full of different veggies, no meat, zero, zero good meat. And she thought it'd be good for my stomach. And so it was the first thing I ate in 21 days. And I remember eating it and just crying. Not out of sadness, but out of joy. This is so good. And I was also crying because God's goodness and what he did in those 21 days and all the other spiritual real reasons. But, but I was also crying because it was so good. I've never tasted something as good as that spinach soup. Now, no spinach soup has ever been that good since. But you guys understand the reality here, right? The principle, two principles we're seeing here. When you're full, even sweet foods taste nasty or are nasty to you. Number two, when you're hungry, anything is sweet. Now, there's a spiritual application that you probably could be connecting. If you snack on spiritual junk food all day, you won't have an appetite for the feast God has for you. And you guys have probably heard people say, or mothers say, don't eat the junk food and spoil your dinner, right? Or something like that. When I say junk food, I don't mean potato chips, although that could be a, a part because some people may just gorge themselves on snacks all day for all these deep, deeper, complex reasons. But what I'm talking about is the endless buffet that we all have access to. The endless buffet, buffet of entertainment, distractions, all kinds of things that 
that will dull your spiritual hunger. Most things that go under the category of junk food, spiritual junk food, are not inherently bad. They're actually good gifts that are just abused by people like us. And many of them can be used appropriately and worshipfully for God, and God delights in them. But for many of us, we don't know how to handle them well. And so spiritual junk food could be Netflix binging or Amazon, or you pick the streaming thing that you use, Pinterest, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Or it could be something like Fortnite or some game that's addicting, the newest, greatest game. Or it could be shopping. It could be a number of things that can be very good that God delights in if used appropriately. And one thing that's important to note is that one man's junk food may be different from another person's junk food. And so something that's junk for you may not be for someone else, but something that is easy for you that you use appropriately and maturely is totally junk food for that person. And so it's it's different. Everyone's different. We're all complex. We all have different family origins of history and all these kind of things that play a part of what makes us the way we are, what wires us. One way to test if something is a junk food or not in your life is to, there's two, two quick tests you can do. Is one, take it away from your life and see how you respond. And two, after engaging in that junk food, consuming that junk food, do you want God more? Do you binge on a series on Netflix and watch a whole series of shows and then walk away saying, I want you more, God. Maybe, maybe. And those are good tests that I try to ask myself that I find myself failing on a regular basis. You know, it's interesting, this word that is translated in Proverbs 27.7, if you look at it real quick, it could come up. That word loathe, he was full loathes the honeycomb. It's almost always translated in Hebrew in the Bible as trample. It's the only time in the Bible it's translated as loathe. Which made me wonder, why is it always trample? Well, I feel like you can be so full on spiritual junk food that you get to the point where you get a true feast from God's word, true spiritual reality offered to you on a plate, and you say, oh, and you want to throw that down, and I'm not going to show it to you, but you can just want, you want to trample that stuff because you don't want anything to do with it. You loathe it so much to the point that you would trample upon it with your foot. I think that maybe that's what the proverb is trying to get at. It's interesting to see the differences between how spiritual hunger and physical hunger work. Think about this. If you are physically starving, the longer you starve, the more hungry you would get. And and you can go through peaks and troughs where you're not as hungry, but your longing for food just grows and grows. And I remember one time sitting behind a friend in a class and I knew he was fasting. And it was in the middle of a Bible class. And I was like, what is he looking at? And my friend Levi was just looking at recipes <laughs> on, his, on his laptop in the middle of the class. And I was like, man, that guy, is, is, he's really struggling. He's so hungry, right? So the more you starve yourself of food, the more your hunger goes up for food. But it's interesting. The more you starve yourself of spiritual food, the less you hunger for it. At first, you may have the Holy Spirit going off and saying, Sam, don't forget me. I'm life. Don't forget me. But then eventually, his voice starts to get quieter and quieter, and you just don't even hear him after a while. And maybe you've ignored him so long, his voice is not even existent. And that's the paradox of how spiritual and physical hunger could be so different. Also, desires. Check, out, check this out. 
I want to read this, past, this, this one quote from a pastor uh, named John Piper that I think is really helpful. The strongest, most mature Christians I have ever met are the hungriest for God. It might seem that those who eat most would be least hungry, but that's not the way it works with an inexhaustible fountain and an infinite feast and a glorious Lord. See, the more you eat physical food, the more you're like, oh, I don't want any more, right? But the more you eat and you feast at his table, the more you receive his word, you, you become more like him, the more you want. It's never ending. You can't satisfy. We'll never be fully satisfied, I'm convinced, even when we see him face to face because he's inexhaustible and we're just going to get more and more and more into eternity. Here's another quote. I don't usually like quoting um, people too much, but this is just good. The more deeply you walk with Christ, the hungry, hungrier you get for Christ. The more homesick you get for heaven. The more you want all the fullness of God. The more you want to be done with sin. The more you want the bridegroom to come again. The more you want the church revived and purified with the beauty of Jesus. The more you want a great awakening to God's reality in the cities. The more you want to see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, penetrate the darkness of all the unreached peoples of the world. The more you want to see false worldviews yield to the force of truth. The more you want to see pain relieved and tears wiped away and death destroyed. The more you long for every wrong to be made right and the justice and the grace of God to fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. See, maturity, the more mature you are, the hungrier you are. So if your hunger is little, your maturity is probably little. Your view of God is little. So now that we have identified their junk food that may be in our life, and, and by the way, junk food, spiritual junk food, sometimes is very hard to identify. It can be very tricky. And so I welcome you to talk with your DNA group or maybe some pastors if you're really trying to disentangle and figure out what, what in my life is dulling my and spoiling, spoiling my spiritual hunger. But now we need to go to number three. How to change your spiritual taste buds. In other words, how to grow in your hunger for God. How do you change your spiritual taste buds? Like eating healthy food, growing in our hunger for God takes intentionality. Right? You've all seen those fitness nuts. Maybe you're one of them. And you do the meal prep the night before. And you have everything planned. So when you get hungry, you know what you're going to grab. Or you're, you're like me, where you just like, you run out the door and you're like, oh, I don't have a lunch. Oh, hey, there's lunch right there at Mickey D's, right? Or you're hungry and you're like, oh, I'm hungry, I need to eat something, right? And, and, and you just mindlessly kind of go with the flow, right? But the, the fitness junkie, the person who's intentional, they have it all planned. They know what's going to come at them. They know, oh, I'm going to get a craving around 2 p.m., so I'm going to eat this, I'm going to have this in my pocket, whatever it is. They are intentional, how much more so spiritual? And yet, the intentionality we hold to our bodies, for some of us, is nothing compared to what we do for a relationship with God. One is easy and quick, but it ultimately harms you, and that's kind of what we do. Let me read one last quote and kind of intro into this next section. If you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, in other words, if you don't have a strong sense and desire for God. It is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. 
It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things. And there is no room for the great. God did not create you for this. There is an appetite for God and it can be awakened. I invite you to turn from the dulling effects of food and the dangers of idolatry and to say with some simple fast, this much, O God, I want you. And so now I want to talk to you guys about fasting. And I want to invite every member at APC to fast something or some things for the first month of your year, 2019. To give God the first fruits, this kind of Old Testament term, the best of a best of a um, of like a harvest they were to give the best part of it the first part of it to God uh, people talk about that with finances you get your paycheck you give your first to for, to God that kind of mindset let's give the first of our year to God fast something or some things to say God this much I want you and I want to talk about more about fasting because I know it's a lost art I know it's confusing. Some of you have never experienced it, or if you have, maybe you have a bad experience with it. Maybe you've never been trained, so you just mindlessly started to stop eating. Um, we also avoid it because it's really hard. Like, you don't fast. Like, I'm going to fast doing homework, right? Like, no one fasts homework. They fast things that they like, right? They fast things that are hard. We also don't talk about it much in the church. It goes against our flesh and our culture and has the potential for legalism. Oh, I fast twice a week. What do you do? Nothing? That's what I thought, right? You could have that kind of pharisaical looking down on others mentality. So fasting is wrought with potential abuses and dangers. But look at Matthew 6.16. Jesus, knowing well that people abuse fasting, doesn't prohibit it. He regulates it. He's mature. He's not just like, all or nothing. No, he says, okay, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and their fasting, so that their fasting may be seen by others. Note note this word right after and. What's that word? When. When you fast. It's an expectation you fast. It's assumed. Come on, you're going to fast, right? When you fast, this is how you're going to do it well. Let me do a quick primer, an introduction on fasting. Let me give you a quote that I think is really helpful for um, Martin Lloyd-Jones since passed away. He says this, Fasting, if we conceive of it truly, must not be confined to the question of food or, and drink. Fasting should really be made to include absence from anything that, which is legitimate in and of itself for the sake of some spiritual, special spiritual purpose. There are many bodily functions which are right and normal and perfectly legitimate, but which for special, peculiar reasons in certain circumstances should be controlled. That is fasting. What do I mean by that? What Martin Lloyd-Jones is trying to explain is that fasting doesn't have to be food, and it doesn't have to be something that's bad. It's usually things that are good. Hopefully you should be fasting sin, right? But we're, let, me, let, me, let me do this. Let me go over a couple of types of fasts, and if you want to listen more, I'll, I'll cover this more in the midweek podcast. And feel free to field in, send in any questions to go further in the podcast. There's a couple of different kinds of fasts you see in the Bible. You see one is, is a crisis, and so you see this in Esther. So the people, uh, the Jews are about to be killed, and so they go on this fast, and they're crying out to God. Another fast you may see is mourning. So someone dies, something tragic happens, and you fast because you just can't even eat. You see Job doing this. There's also seasonal fasts, like you see Moses go through it and Jesus go through it, where they fast for a set amount of days. And it's not like they do it all the time, but like a set amount of days so that they can do something special for God, to receive more from God, to be with God more. 
There's another one called a bridal fast, which is probably less familiar with for, for, for some of you or many. A bridal fast comes from Matthew 9, and I think it's up on the, on the up here. Matthew 9, you see that Jesus is, um, his disciples are fasting, and there was a fasting culture. And John the Baptist's disciples are like, yo, why aren't your, why aren't your, your, your people fasting? He said, hey, listen, when I'm here, they should rejoice. I'm here. But when I leave, because I'm going to ascend to the Father soon after I die, for your sins, by the way. <laughs> right, he didn't say that. Um, <laughs> when I ascend to the Father, then they're going to fast because they're going to long for me to return. And so one way that people express fasting in the Bible is longing or trying to fast to help you long because you should long and you're not longing. And so that's another fast, is the bridal fast, is I don't want God as much as I want. I mean, I, I bet I could shame all of you and I could shame myself by just asking how many of you long for Jesus' return this week? Badly. And maybe some of you, if you went through some tragedy or something like that, for most of us, we don't think about Jesus' coming. We're like, oh, it's all good. It's all good, right? But, but listen, Jesus is coming, and we ought to be longing for his return. And so the bridal fast reminds us of that we're not with our love, that he's not on this earth physically, and that until he's here, all things are not right, even on your best day. And so it's a reminder to feel the emptiness, the hunger, the pains, the weakness. All things are not right. And then the final one would be habitual fasting. That You, you kind of see this alluded by bad people in the Bible, actually. And then you hear about the early church. They would fast, you know, Tuesdays and Thursdays or different things like that so they can grow. Let me highlight three quick purposes of fasting. These aren't the only ones, but these are helpful. And they're specific to food, but also include other fasts. Number one, it reminds us of our need. Fasting reminds us of our need. We're constantly trying to be self-sufficient and not need, right? Like, I, no one says, I'm a not self-made man. I need people, right? People want the opposite. We want to be stronger and self-sufficient. And so when you feel the weakness of your body because your blood sugar is low, you say, oh God, that reminds me, I need you more. When you feel the hunger pain and the emptiness, you say, oh man, I'm needy. And it helps you grow in your neediness and your dependency and your, the reality that you are spiritually bankrupt apart from him and when every time you feel the pangs of hunger you say i want food but god i want you more i want to watch netflix but i want you more than netflix whatever it is you let that hunger reorient itself for a longing for more of god i know i know i know one couple in our church that may be fasting alcohol for the first month of the year not because it's an idol, but because they, don't want to make, they want to make sure it's not an idol. And as they feel the desire that mm, I, I want to drink something, oh, it's been a rough day, say, no, God, I want you more. I need you more. That's number one, reminds us of our need. Number two, it makes room for God. Listen, if you don't eat or if you don't watch Netflix or whatever you fast, you will have more capacity. All of us have limited capacity in our days. And so fasting may be removing a very good thing, a thing that you should continue, like eating, you should continue, you, can't, you don't want to die, but you're removing for a season so you have more capacity, more bandwidth, more time to focus on God. Number three, it also reveals idols. You remove these things, you're like, maybe it's an idol, I'm not sure, remove it and you'll know real soon. And if you can't remove it, it's an idol. It's a great opportunity to show you. Maybe things that you're like, oh, I'm totally fine, I can handle that. Maybe you can't. Maybe you're deceived because all of us can be deceived at times. 
I've been the person that I can handle it. Everyone's like, no, he can't. He can't. He doesn't know what he's thinking, right? Maybe you're in that situation right now. Now, a couple of cautions with fasting. One, pride. Pride can be so prevalent with fasting. Oh, nobody fasts in our culture, but I'm fasting, right? Pride is a killer. So that's why I want to implement a policy in our church. Don't ask, don't tell. Only in your DNA group or maybe a pastor where you're trying to wrestle through things, don't ask them, hey, what are you fasting on? I'm fasting on these things. What are you? And people start one-upping and eventually like people aren't breathing. You know, like, I won't eat. I won't drink, right? I'm not going to breathe, right? Yeah, you, so we don't, we don't want that culture. We don't want that pharisaical culture. Some people should not fast for a certain season they're in and other people may have the capacity to do it. it, it it's going to look different for everyone and we do not want to have a culture that is judgy based on how spiritual you are if you're fasting or not. But you should fast at some level in general. Um, other cautions is that when people, once people start, they're overly ambitious. And once they start, they feel like they can't stop and alter it. And they're too proud to admit that. And so they like, really have some problems. Another one is maybe you struggle with an eating disorder. And you fast for the wrong reasons. And it can be used for all the wrong reasons. Another danger is that you won't replace it with more of God. You just don't do something. So like if you fast food for lunch so you can spend time with God, but instead you watch Sports Center, that's not going to help you. So you have to replace it. Finally, there could be a sense of legalism and guilt where you don't feel like God loves you because you're not fasting as much as other people. And that's another danger we don't want to have in here. So final step of changing your spiritual taste buds is replacing the junk food. Replacing the junk food. You can't merely just take it away. You've got to replace it with something better. And so here's a, the big preaching point I want you to take away. You hunger for what you feed yourself. Listen, you hunger for what you feed yourself. You hunger for what you feed yourself. So, so if you want to know why you hunger for what you hunger for, how, why you feel the way you do about God, it's because you fed yourself on a certain diet. You are what you eat. And that adage is true spiritually much more than just physically. The more you feed yourself on God and his ways, the more you want him. But you have to replace. You have to remove and then replace. Excuse me. You have to remove and replace. But at first, there's a learning curve. At first, it's hard. It's kind of like LaCroix. You guys know LaCroix? See, I used to be part of Bethlehem Baptist Church, and everyone there likes LaCroix. And I remember when I first drank it, everyone's like, dude, we got LaCroix. I'm like, no way, what's that? And I drink it. Ugh, what is this? What is this flavorless food that I drink, right? I thought it was terrible. But you know what? Everybody's doing it. So I'm like, I mean, I guess it's good. I just kept drinking it. It's kind of like when people first drink alcohol, like very few people like the first time, but then everyone's doing it, so you got to keep drinking. Or coffee, come on, let's be real. Very few people like coffee the first time they drink it. And if you do, you're, you're special. I've been drinking black coffee for like six months straight, and I do not like it still. And I've drank all the best, I've been to all the best ones, all the fancy ones that I don't belong in. And Okay, that's a, okay I need to stop. But, guess what? I kind of like LaCroix now. Because I start drinking it, and drinking it more. And I'm like, hey, everyone's, hey guys, I have LaCroix, I'm drinking LaCroix, right? And as I drank it more, I started to like it. And my taste buds started to reorient themselves and like things that didn't have sugar. But at first, it was hard. And God is kind of like this, but actually worth loving. <laughs> We're not tricked or deceived. The more we consume of him, the more our taste buds at first may be like, oh, I'm not used to that. I'm used to this. We start to, oh, okay, this is, this is good. This is good stuff. And 
our cravings start to be shaped. And we start to crave that which is truly worth craving. I remember this also happened when I was seventh grade. My mom came home and she had a crazy look in her eye and she started start taking stuff from our pantry. And she watched some TV show that talked about healthy living. And she was convinced that we would get cancer by everything we were eating or drinking or breathing or being around or touching, right? And so all of a sudden, everything in our whole house changes. Has anyone experienced that in their home? Everything changed. And you're like, what is going on? Life is over, right? And at first, I started having withdrawals. Like, what is going on? I need to have my soda. I need to have my, my goldfish all the time. And, and, and now that I'm an adult, I have the goldfish back in my life but um, with kids. And so they are my excuse to have goldfish. But <clears throat> all of a sudden... At first, I start to have a panic attack. What's going on? Where's all my foods? But over time, I got to the point where I actually don't like soda anymore, except LaCroix or Bubbly or whatever. I don't like soda. It's, to me, it's too carbonated and too sweet. I can't handle it. But at first, it was like part of my blood system, right? So there, there's a process of weaning and replacing that is very true spiritually that we all have to experience. So at first, if you start to consume more of the word than you ever have before, at first you're like, this is boring. This is hard. I'm distracted. I'm thinking about like cleaning all of a sudden, all these other distracting things, right? That, that's the weaning process. And that's the process where your taste buds spiritually start to be reoriented to what is truly worthy of liking. It's kind of like the third, a third world country, a really, really destitute third, third, third world country. Have you ever seen uh, a video or seen or heard about this where uh, uh, maybe a boy who, who's never had clean water before, all he's known is dirty water, drinks clean water from a bottle. And they're like, what is this clean water? Because all they know is the dirt. And that's kind of how we are. Like all we know is the, the world's dirt. And so when we taste the pure milk of the word, we, we taste pure goodness, we're like, Bleh! but over time, we're like, oh, oh, so floating worms and poop and dirt is not good in my water, right? And, and, and I know that's kind of a joke and I don't want to be demeaning to that, but that's kind of the reality. Like we start to reorient, oh, that's, that's not good. That's not normal. This is good. This is better. And so if we're going to fast, we must replace it with feasting. Fasting can never be alone. It must be replaced with feasting on the word. You cannot merely withhold. You must replace. And one of the primary ways to pursue God is to consume his word. One of the primary ways. Not the only way. As you guys know, I've been going crazy about this Bible reading plan. We're going to read through the Bible in two years. And we have all these other cool things. I'm, I'm begging you. Join us in that. And every day consuming the word and talking with your DNA group and others about it and praying it and applying the word and delighting in the word together. If you struggle with loving the word and it's like icky to you, like the clean water to a third world child or to someone who's never eaten organic food or whatever it is, I encourage you this week, for the, actually this next month, take Psalm 119. Okay, Psalm 119 is the largest book chapter in the Bible. If you open up a Bible, it's usually right in the middle, like this, except like this, except it's not, it's not working. But it's right in the middle of the Bible. And if you go to Psalm 119, it's actually acrostic, and it's using the Hebrew alphabet. And each section is about eight verses. It's a different Hebrew al alphabet, uh, al alphabet, alphabet, letter, thank you. It starts with Aleph. And when you start with Aleph, um, it goes through eight verses or so that are just beautifully soul-stirring to give you a desire for God's Word. And the way they talk about God's Word, it just starts washing and transforming your heart. I encourage you, for the next 24 days, starting January 1st, read one section a day. It'll take you just a, a few moments, not even a minute really, but spend some time, dwell on it, and ask God to give you a greater hunger for the, what you should truly hunger for. 
I, I want to commend you to fast some activity in 2019. Maybe talk with your DNA group about how you can think about something that you could withhold from. I know what I'm going to withhold from, and if you want to talk with me about that in person, I can tell you to give you ideas um, of what you could do and how you could go about it. Um, and really, man, it's, just, it's, it's to give us more capacity for Christ and to replace it with more of God. What, how great would it be if we, as a church, gave our first month to Jesus, went hard after him? You know what? It's going to influence the rest of 2019. What if we did that, went hard after God? In 2019, I just really believe that, that God is calling us as much as we want to be a missional, quote-unquote, church and that we want to be a family. I think God has grown us a lot to be family. We have, we have more to grow. I really feel like a theme that he has for us in the first part of this year is intimacy. Do you know me? Do you enjoy me? And he's beckoning and wooing us to call, to go back to our first love, maybe you forgot, like Revelation 3 talks about, and go back to him and go deeper than ever before with him. I want to end with addressing any unbelievers here. Maybe you don't follow Jesus or maybe you, you call yourself a Christian, but you know deep inside you don't love him and know him and delight in him more than anything else. And I would say maybe you don't have a desire for God at all. Like if there was a, a level one, two, you know, zero to a hundred, you're like at zero or one. You know, you're here, so maybe you're at a one or five. Who knows? Who knows why you're here? Maybe you were tricked or maybe you were whatever it is. Um, one of the things that the enemy loves to do, and let's be clear, there is an enemy. He hates you, and he plots your demise all day long. And he has a whole team of people trying to destroy you. And they watch you, and they study you, and they know how you work so they can take you down. One of his greatest tactics is to just fill you up with anything or everyone so that you have no room to think about God. Distract you with stresses in life, successes in life, different things so that you're just constantly running the rat race and never slowing down and looking that you're running it. Never wondering who put you there, who, who made everything. And that's one of the things that the enemy loves to do for, for maybe you or maybe, even for Christians. He tries to distract us and keep us going and running with the flow. But you're kind of running around like an animal, just going to the next thing to satisfy your desire. You know, when you watch an animal in the wild or even a dog, they just, they don't, they just, that's, they don't sit there and ponder the purpose of life and why they're made, right? They're just looking for the next meal to satisfy their next desire. And, and if you're not careful, that can be you where you're just kind of running and gunning. But you're not an animal and God has created you for himself. And maybe you've heard the statement by Blas <clears throat> Pascal that you have a God-shaped hole in your heart and that is true. You were made for him. He has designed you for himself. He is greatest. He is great joy. He is life. He is everything. He is the great treasure. He is the one whom your soul has been searching for. And if you don't have him, you don't have life. And if you're hearing me today and you're not sure you know him, know this. He wants you to have him. He wants you to have him so bad that he came and left the comforts of heaven and died the death that you deserved. And he lived the life that we should have lived so that he could have you. And he offers it to every one of us, everybody, no matter how scarlet and red and soiled your past is, he says, I can make you clean. I will forgive you. I already know. I already know what you did. I already know what you'll do. I love you. And if you want him, you can have him. And that is true. That is gospel truth. But my fear is what happens in Revelation 3.17. This is what's going on with this one church. They say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You can have Jesus if you want him. 
All you have to do is come to him with nothing. As the hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. If you want him, you can have him. You can have true life. You can find the one whom your soul has been searching for your whole life. And for the believers here, I hope that you don't feel too beat up. Because I hope at the end of this you know that Jesus has gone to great lengths so that you can have him. And that he beckons you. I want to give you more of myself. Whatever you have of me, I want to give you more. I want you to have more joy. I want you to have more life. I love you so much and I'm not content with giving you the little morsels that you have right now. I want more. Let's have more of him in 2019, church. Let's pray. (sighs) Father, I know that my hunger for you is so small compared to how great you are. And I know many in this room are like that. And so I pray that you'd give us a greater hunger for you, a greater hunger for your word, a greater hunger for your ways, a greater hatred and a loathing of the things that keep us from you. Show us, Lord, the things in our life that keep us from you. As we reflect and respond, show us the areas in our life that are competing for you, the idols in our life that are competing for our chief affections. Convict us, reveal, and give us greater joy and greater hope and greater life in you that we have never that we've ever experienced before. This year in 2019, we give you this first month and we give you our lives. But this one month is a reminder to cry out to tell you this much, Lord, do we love you? This much, Lord, do we want you? In Jesus' name, Amen.